Trauma Healing Learnings based on one mom's journal entries recorded in real time from a catastrophic event with her son that you've been listening to in the blink of an eye story. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Hello, dear ones. We are proud to be sponsored by I See That, the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to disrupting the current response to spinal cord injury by providing support to families and medical teams nationwide. With spinal cord injury medical expert opinions, SCI family support and navigation, and an online resource library, providing an extraordinary experience for family, friends, and medical teams with SCI tips and trauma support during the spinal cord injury crisis. Welcome to Trauma Healing Learning 4, Being Human, Part 1, with Dr. Daniel Gottlieb. Dr. Dan Gottlieb, human. That's what today's guest's business card read. The clinical psychologist, former host of WHYY's Voices in the Family in Philadelphia, and yes, human, has known since he was a child that he wanted to be a therapist. He struggled in school due to an undiagnosed learning disability and eventually made it all the way up and through a Ph.D. program in psychology. He was trained in a behavioral approach but found himself practicing in other ways after a big life change. In 1979, Dr. Gottlieb suffered a spinal cord injury rendering him a quadriplegic. Dr. Gottlieb's career as a family therapist in psychology is born out of a place of deep love and openness to struggles and to witnessing and helping people with their struggles. In this two-part episode, we cover the origins of his career, how his spinal cord injury changed the way he approached therapy, and his advice for young quadriplegics. This conversation was a joy to have, and I hope you will learn something about how we all can be more human, more loving to one another, through Dr. Gottlieb's words. A few quick notes. You will hear a clicking sound every time Dr. Gottlieb speaks. That sound is coming from his wheelchair motor, synchronized with his speech. In addition, this interview was carried out in two parts over the course of a few days due to the daily fluctuations of a quadriplegic's health. You'll find part two in your podcast feeds tomorrow so you can listen to both side by side. So settle in. Take a deep breath. And think about what this being human, or imperfectly human, 
or perfectly human means to you. Welcome to Being Human, Part 1 with Dr. Daniel Gottlieb. You know, I, I just really want to thank you with all of your, all that you're doing for taking the time to be human with us today, because it's just so good to be with another fellow kindred spirit, helping others to heal and helping ourselves to heal. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. You know, I'm reminded, Dan, of the poet Rumi who speaks about this being human. Are you familiar with that poem? Yeah, The Guest House. The Guest House, yes. I, I imagine that when you put uh, Dr. Dan Gottlieb, human, on your business card, which is what I was reading and how I learned of that, that surely you must have a number of people ask you uh, what you mean by that. And is there anything in addition to what you've just shared with us that you would want them to know? It's interesting now that you mention it. Very few people have asked me. Really? Yeah, they're intrigued. They're taken by it. They like it. But very few people ask me. And I I didn't even realize it until just this week. No, is there more to this story? Um, I guess there is. Um, that over the course of all these years, uh, I just learned more and more about what it means to be human. You know, it, um, well, it, it uh, means what the great rabbinic scholar of the 20th century said everybody has a hungry heart it was uh, Rabbi Springsteen um, <laughs> so that's one um, you know we suffer we hurt we grieve we feel helpless we're vulnerable we uh, we love um, we want love um, we need meaning in our lives, and God knows we need each other. I remember I was first awakened to that when you spoke of how we need love, we need meaning. When I read the works of Eric Fromm when I was an undergrad at UVA, and it was it was a real. I've always been a young girl, kind of on a quest. I was, you know, I would journal extensively when I was young and I was interested in everything from, you know, bugs to why were there cracks in sidewalks to why were the stars shooting at night and, you know, the seasons. It's, I've just, I've just had a hunger for understanding this incredible universe God's given us. But I, I remember from writing about man's, this, this yearning for meaning. Is that what took you into psychotherapy? No. What took you into psychotherapy? 
I decided when I was 12 years old that I was going to be a therapist. When you were 12? 12. And here's how it happened. Um, so I did very badly in school. I was starting to get bad grades as early as third, fourth grade, fifth grade. Um, in any particular you know, subject or just across the board, bad grades? The whole thing. I was just a bad student. You know, I learned. You had a different learning style school. than was being presented to you. Well, I had a learning disability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We didn't know about them back then. Mm -hmm. We didn't know about learning styles. Yes. Um, so I was either lazy or stupid. Um, and I wasn't lazy. I was trying as hard as I could. Yes. Anyway, um, so that's everything to me, yeah. You know, middle class, upper middle class, upper. Um, so uh, I didn't feel like I was had much value. Even as a very young boy. Yeah, yeah. I just I felt different. Like when everybody got their report cards and were comparing, um, I would lie or I would race home because I was so ashamed. Mm. Um, so anyway, there I am in, in seventh grade. Well, how were you received when you were a young boy at home? I had a lot of friends. You had a lot of friends. I still do. People love me and I love them. So your family still loved you regardless of the doing poorly yeah. in school. Yeah, but they're pretty disappointed. Mm -hmm. So um, seventh grade, we have a, a teacher that everybody idolized. And we had career day, and everybody invited you know, a fireman, a policeman, a doctor. And my teacher suggested I invite a psychologist. And um, I invited Dr. Lewis Fields from Atlantic City. And he came to class. His hair was rumpled. He was and you're, you're 12 years old and invited Dr. Lewis Fields. I had no idea what a psychologist. Was he a friend of your family? Nope. How, no, how did you have any contact with him at back I, in the I 70s or whenever it was, 60s? I a psychologist in the <laughs> Oh, my so goodness. He said, yeah, yeah, that's how you did it. Yeah. So, um, so uh, he comes in and he's talking about you know, testing and, and all that, and diagnosing, and then thinking, it's okay. Then he started talking about psychotherapy. About psychotherapy. And, and you were 12. At, at that moment, I knew that A, I wanted to do it, not wanted to, was going to do it. Mm. And B, I believed I would be good at it. And up until that point, I wasn't good in anything, um, and which is odd because I knew there was a lot, a lot, a lot of school ahead of me. And for a guy who did so poorly at school to say to himself, not I want it, but I will have it. I will. 
I will be a psychotherapist and I will yeah. be good at it. Yeah. And, um, that was, that almost sounds a little divinely inspired to me. Well, there's another little caveat to that mm-hmm. little story. So I was in the playground the next day and I'm leaning across the chain link fence by myself. And I looked to the heavens and I prayed to a 12 year old God. And I said, make me a great psychologist and I'll do anything I need to do to get there. Oh, wow. You had like the classic uh, negotiation bargaining with God discussion. Yeah. And one month later, my beloved teacher asked me to join his secret leadership club. He abused me. Oh, my. That's the secret. He was abusing his students. Oh, you know, as soon as you said that, I wanted to say, you mean like the secret pedophilia club? And I thought that would, that's what came up for me intuitively. Oh, yeah, my So that was gracious. my first piece of education in becoming a psychologist. At the, uh, what, what uh, many traditions would say about the age of 12, the age of reason. And you had your dream, and then you had the victimization mm. um, and I mean you know from the history of it knocked on my ass a lot uh, uh, say that again please I've been knocked on my ass a lot in my life uh, from being thrown out of college to uh, my wife leaving and then dying one year after she left Sister died, um, and of course, there's quadriplegia thing. And I'm a believer, and I got it from a friend of mine who's a Holocaust survivor, that no pain should be wasted. Mm-hmm. And all of things, these things, when I look at them, taught me what it means to be so it's almost through pain and suffering that you have fully experienced what it is like to be human and then on the other side. I don't think I could have become who I am but for what I did. Yeah, interesting. You know, I, I was going to ask you about that, but you've just added so much, so many contours and more context to this being knocked so many times and to have suffered as you did to really experience being being human. I'm, I'm wondering because of also reading about your background when you have been a practitioner working with addiction and then in the uh, Family Institute in Philadelphia, the renowned Family Institute, did you also have backgrounds in, in addiction? What what took you into those areas? Or was it just simply a, a willing, open heart that took you in that direction or something else? Open job. Open. Open. Open job. 
was fresh out of college. Yeah, let, let's remember, this is the kid who didn't do well in school, who got kicked out of college. There was a job opening. <laughs> so yeah. my, job, my job that I first got was at an all-black hospital in southwest Philly, founded by black doctors who couldn't get privileges. In. And A, I was their first white employee and B, my job was on a small locked psychiatry ward in a general hospital and I was the only psychologist that was wow that was that was your first job so so you did go on to say I'm going to be a great uh, psychotherapist and then psychologist and then you graduate somehow, right, by hook or by crook, and this is your first job at this um, you say hook or black by crook. hospital. Um, let's just say lie, cheat, and steal. Oh, my. Is it yeah, so? Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, so I get my first job, and I treat my first patient, and I suck at this. How'd you know? I didn't know what the hell I was doing. You know, it was the beginning of behavior therapy. When, when, and I learned a technique. And uh, my first patient, not unusual for psychologists, is a woman who was schizophrenic, and she'd had schizophrenia for 35 years. And at the time, I'm 25 years old. She had schizophrenia longer than I had me. Yeah. So. And you're wet behind the ears just getting out of graduate uh, school. So she comes shuffling into my office. She was over medicated, like most were. Um, and she's got some papers in her. So what decade are we in right now when this... We are 1973. Okay. Um, so she's tearing papers during the session. And I don't want to ask her why I'm afraid she'll get upset. And I figured she gets upset. It's bad therapy, I think. Remember, I knew one technique. Yes, just one so, technique. So she's tearing papers. So at the end... You know, she shuffles over to the door and she turns to me and she says, you know something? She says, you're full of shit and I've got the papers to prove it. I loved her at that point. I knew it. She knew it. I didn't have to pretend anymore. So, so then what happened in that moment? Um, well, my first reaction was, you know, I was embarrassed. And, and then I realized, and I said to her, you know, you're right. I am. I wasn't sure about what I was doing. Yeah, you're right. There was such yeah. a moment of humanity from the and young 25-year-old wet-behind-the-ears therapist with a schizophrenic of over 35 years of age because she'd had it for 35 years and you're telling her that 
a viewpoint that she had just voiced was right, even insightful. Yeah, we had a great relationship after that. Yeah, really. So should she mean, stayed on was, as a client? Yeah, we didn't have to. I didn't have to do therapy. I didn't have to pretend. We just hung out. I asked questions. Who knows? It might have been therapy. Yeah. Well, it depends on how one defines therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it may not have been the school that you had been taught in. Uh, that particular theory, but it but it may have been one around um, acceptance and presence, non-judgment, the most powerful aspects of healing for any, for any of us. Yeah, really, really, really beautiful. Well, you know, I'm I'm just even wondering about this long illustrious career of yours. I read that you were interested and had been also teaching kindness. When you teach kindness, uh, what what do you teach? What's it like? What do you say? What do you do? What's it about? Well, I do it at all of my lectures, all of my lectures, um, to include with, with compassion and self-compassion. And love. As a matter of fact, I was just given, I think, the greatest honor of my whole career. Oh, what was that? I was invited by the Ukraine Psychological Association to uh, post a video for the psychologists over there. And I, I talked about. Um, I talked about how a traumatized therapist can treat a traumatized patient. And um, I, I, I concluded with almost a story about, about Norma. The story I did tell was about the time I was treating a 17-year-old girl, and she was just beating the hell out of herself like a lot of kids do. You know, she was beating herself up for her body and pimples and grades. I don't know. You Other mean she was just being really emotionally, mentally hard on herself? It was so much so that it was hard to hear because, you know, like most, she was a lovely young woman. Yeah. Right. So um, I kind of bowed my head down for a minute. And I saw that my catheter had leaked and my pants were soaked. And um, I felt such deep shame um, that I couldn't raise my head for a little while. And um, this is during this is during your working with the girl or during your talk yeah. for the Ukraine? Yeah. Working with the girl. This is a story I told. And she saw. And I was so, so very embarrassed that this happened in front of a 17-year-old girl. And I finally looked up, and I might have had tears in my eyes. And um, silently, she walked over to me, put her arms around me, and put 
Bad These two vulnerable humans having an experience yes. as intimate as you can get. Yes. That's what we need to do. That's what we need to do. Yes. We need to have the courage to be vulnerable in front of And a lot of people think strength is invulnerability. And I know real strength is to be comfortable with your weakness. Yes. We, we wrote a chapter on that, being strong enough to be vulnerable as, uh, as one of the seven ways of really? quality interaction yeah, yeah, and lasting change. And you know, Dan, that story is so moving to me because I think in just one moment, it describes what can happen from a quantum physics standpoint for trauma healing. People might work for a lifetime trying to heal a trauma or turn around a way that they view themselves negatively or the world with great despair. And there can be these moments that just leap forward in ways that others just could not explain because they heal the heart and the soul is free to dance again. Yeah. 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 And that's what you and she had. Yeah. And it's what you had with that schizophrenic woman. So you have a gift. Yeah, that's what I have with yeah. most of my patients. It's very intimate. Very, it's very loving. It's um, very touching. Physically, I, mean, I can't do it on Zoom. When I was seeing patients in my office, at the end of the session, came over, embraced me, hugged each other, regardless of age or gender. Do you think your quadriplegia has allowed that to unfold more so? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, a, I'm vulnerable. You can't hurt anybody. And, uh, and B, um, you know, kind of safe. Um, and I think that's what makes it easy to come over to me. Um, and I, you know, I follow Rabbi Springsteen. You know, everybody's got a hungry heart, but those hugs feel good. Yes, they do. We all need hugs, don't we? Yeah. You know, I think that when any of us has experienced any type of deep suffering and certainly when there's such great loss from the injury of quadriplegia the suffering is really 
not a suffering that anyone else could really imagine or fathom when you can do so little for yourself. Now you speak about alienation and loneliness as being the greatest suffering. And, and then I know that we've spoken today about loss and I'm just wondering if we could delve more into all three of those, alienation, loneliness, and loss, and what, what there is to learn about those three experiences. Where do you want to start? What we've learned right through the the long and winding road, um, and it leads me back to your door, but the door leads you back to you're there. You lead you back to yourself. So you know that's that's not the cure for alienation, but it's just step towards well-being. It is, isn't it? Yeah. To come back, to come to come back home to you. Yeah. To hear, there, yeah. there's really nothing, there's nothing else than than here, and it's all right here. I, I um, a couple of years ago, there's an article that showed up here in about um, sex abuse with Boy Scout leaders. Well, my teacher was also my Boy Scout leader, mm. and I wrote an article describing what happened. Describing, you wrote an article as a as a man describing what had happened to you as a boy. Yeah. After you read that article in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Yes. Yes. Was it was it the first time you had actually spoken of it? No, no. But when I wrote about it this time, I went into much more detail about what happened and what happened to me emotionally. Well, I get a lot of emails from boy men who say they were abused and never told anybody. Yes. And then I got an email from this man's cousin, my abuser's cousin in California. And he talked about what this did to his family. To his family. Yes. Yes, the shame and the, and the ripping apart yeah, to have yeah. learned. I was craving to hold this man. Oh, yes. To reconnect in a real way. So I... I oh, hold, hold on, hold on. I want to pause you on that. What is the impulse that had you craving to connect with that man? You don't know. Um, I do. I bet you do know. Mastery. Mastery. I'll explain. Yes. After that exchange with the cousin, I went to the neighborhood where it happened. And I rode up and down. I, I didn't remember exactly what the corner was. And of course, that house wasn't there. But 
So geographically, the space was there. The yeah. house was no longer there. So I sat in the corner and I looked at that house and I pictured the wallpaper in the living room. When you first came in and he had me sit down on the sofa and talk. I pictured the hallway into the bedroom. I pictured climbing into his bed naked because he had a paddle there. Um, I recalled all the detail. And, and I'm almost on the corner looking in. And in my mind, I went into that house, picked up that little boy who was all alone. I picked him up and I held him in my arms and I kept him with me. Oh. I still have kept him. And what I learned was when we are traumatized, you leave that child in the back. Yes. Get away from that child. Yes. You think we're getting away from the trauma, but we're getting away from the child. And I told that story in my speech to the Ukrainians, and I said, please don't abandon yourself. Yes. It's such a powerful story. And... I I really would love to ask a few more questions about that. One of the key pieces that we know about trauma and trauma healing is that experience of being separated and abandoned, not cared for. And it's oftentimes from ourselves. And so your recreating that, perhaps the good therapist following some of his own good medicine, you know, recreating the, the little boy, the 12-year-old, you know, doesn't have to be a baby or a five-year-old, but the little 12-year-old naked boy, afraid of a paddle as well, and just holding him with safety is so powerful because we know now with trauma and trauma healing that we can send new messages to the central nervous system that recalibrates a, a little 12-year-old system that may have had the 22 and 32 and 42 and 52-year-old man really out of calibration until that occurs. Right, right. Did you experience anything with this even more recent experience when you recreated that for yourself with regard to your own central nervous system, your own sense of who you were? I sat on that corner and I cried. was the first time I cried mm. from that from that. Okay. And how old were you Dan, then, Dan? 
recent, relatively recent. Seventy. Yeah, seventy. And the well, first yeah. first time. Oh, what we carry, what so yeah. many of us carry. There's a supplement to that story that um, I was doing my internship and driving on the turnpike back to Temple University Works. And um, I heard on the radio that this man, well, he was a principal of the school and he got caught and he went home and he took out his service revolver and he killed his wife, his three children and himself. And I just pulled over to the side of the road and threw up. I thought, I, I, I'm feeling it myself. Like, I just want to vomit. Yeah, yeah. And, Viscerally. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I didn't cry. Oh, my God. Um, and I didn't cry. And, and maybe that was it. That's why I needed to hug the nephew. Uh, That's why I needed to go, go back. back and I, hug I had so, the little so many tears in there. Yeah, oh, God, my heart went out to his cousin, his family, yes. to his wife's family. Yes. Oh, God. They're pretty prominent people in there. Yes, the pain that the well, you and I both study family systems. What we also both know about family systems, and now relating it to trauma, your own trauma, Archer's trauma, my son's trauma, our family's trauma. It's it's important, and I I really am so appreciative of your story in so many ways. Your vulner your courage to be vulnerable, but also to really show that we digest those painful parts of our lives when we're ready. And we can always be digesting bites and pieces of it. It doesn't all have to be done, you know, like, you know, oh, there's been something awful and now we have to like rush and go through all this and I emerge, you know, a month later and just feel great. You know, it's just this unfolding over the months and years and decades. We get, I get people who sit all day in wheelchair, get pressure sores in their butts. Yeah. And I learned from my first one, bad one. Doctor said, wounds to the skin heal if they're kept clean. Heal at a rate of one millimeter a day. Yeah, one millimeter a day. They're 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 brutal. And I thought, what about wounds to the heart? Yes. Millimeter a day. Yeah. Take your time with yourself. Yes, it's a beautiful analogy, really, and also how pressure ulcers and bed wounds can kill a person and a quadriplegic relatively quickly. Really? Well, I know that it's something we watch, like you know, the play at the door, and and it's a the analogy that you draw 
for all of us wanting to take care of our wounds of our hearts uh, to really take care of them because they can really rip us apart too in um, bad relationships and poor decisions and addictions and uh, bitterness, rigidity, lots yeah. of uh, things that we do. The, the, the man who was outed and went and murdered his own family you know, they, they cause us to hurt other people when we're not healed ourselves. I would, I would um, change what Ruby's poem said, maybe just add in this being human can be very difficult sometimes. Yes, 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 this, this being human. Uh, the... I believe that there was some, the acknowledgement of that and to continue welcoming these enemies yeah. uh, at, at the door. You know, I, I think, too, that there perhaps is some wisdom that you might wish to share with listeners about how adversity can teach us to live better and to love better. Is there anything you'd like to say about that? I think you actually wrote that somewhere. Yeah. Um, adversity reminds us of a of the fragility of life, and if we're lucky, the preciousness of life. You know, I told my family after the accident that I, I would live with it for three years, and then I'd make a decision. And, and at the end of three years, I I thought, well, maybe I'll live with it um, if I've hoped that I'll walk again and I knew I was not. And I said maybe I'll live with it if I won't be so sick going forward. And I knew I might be and I might not be. And finally I had to make a decision to live or to die. And the blessing for me that I wish everybody would have I made the decision to live. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. Love heals trauma. Thank you for tuning in to the Trauma Healing Learnings. You may tune in to the companion Blink of an Eye story at Season 3, Episode 4, The Feeling of Home. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and following. And thank you for telling your friends about Blink of an Eye. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Blink of an Eye Podcast is sponsored by I See That, the integrative center for trauma healing, advocacy, and transformation.
a nonprofit created as a national resource to help change the way we respond to spinal cord injury to include trauma healing approaches for families and medical teams across the U.S. I See That provides a national team of SCI specialized doctors for expert opinions in the first hours of crisis, a multidisciplinary family support and navigation team for SCI families led by SCI families for the first 30 days of crisis, and a national resource library of trauma-informed responses for the first hours and days after injury specialized for families, friends, and SCI medical staff. I See That also offers a registry of medically unexpected SCI recoveries. I See That will host the inaugural conference, The Science of Trauma, Hope for Trauma Healing, October 6, 2022. To donate and find out more, visit www.iseethat.org. That's I, the letter C, T-H-A-T dot org.